Welcome to the Activist Insight podcast, which takes you through the top shareholder activism stories as told by Activist Insight Monthly. Your monthly magazine for October is out now and features an analysis of short selling in 2020, a look into blink charging success despite accusations of stock promotion by two short sellers, and Osmium Partners' ascent from a run-of-the-mill investment fund to an activist. In today's episode, we'll hear from Activist Insight Monthly's Jason Booth about short-selling trends this year, and later, Yuri Struter on how the Securities and Exchange Commission's withdrawal of the Boulder letter impacts activism at closed-end funds. So Jason, thank you for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me. So Activist Insight looks at the short selling market every year. What's new this year versus 2019? So far, as of the end of uh, September, we had 117 short campaigns uh, publicly disclosed. Uh, that's down from about 126 at the same time last year. The ones that have been done have been in some ways more impactful, more what you might call kill shots. Uh, we've had five campaigns this year that in the first week have resulted in over 50% decline in the target share price. Last year, you only had a couple of situations like that. And this year, you have 14 cases where you have down over 30% versus nine last year. Two companies uh, actually got themselves delisted uh, within weeks of the campaigns being launched. Those were Luck and Coffee, the, the Chinese coffee chain. Fraud was disclosed after several weeks of denying the accusation. And Akazoo, which was a supposedly London-based music streaming company, but Quintessential did a very extensive campaign on them and found they were basically being run out of a small office in Athens and had only a fraction of the business they claimed to. That company, along with Luckin, have both been delisted. Many, many of the employees of both have been fired and uh, could possibly face legal criminal action. You could say that even though there's been a slowdown in the number of campaigns, there's been more impact and more uh, decisive campaigns. Does this mean it's fair to say that short sellers are having a profitable year? Out of the campaigns we've looked at so far this year, average one-week return was about 8.5%, uh, which is up substantially from last year, which was just under 7%. And it's actually the highest number since we've started tracking these numbers uh, 2013, which would make it look like it's been a very profitable year. But if you talk to people in the market, they'll actually tell you quite the opposite. They'll say that's really a terrible time to be a short seller. And uh, whereas some campaigns have seen dramatic returns, as we talked about in the prior question, more generally, it's, it's actually harder to make money you know, it's worth noting that the median return this year is actually down about five and a half percent, down from six percent last year. You know, whereas several campaigns made a lot of money, many others didn't make that much money, and there have been some substantial losses. And the reasons they point to that are there's a lot of liquidity in the market. Despite the financial crisis, uh, the Federal Reserve has been pumping a lot of money into the system, keeping companies afloat. There's the so-called Robin Hood effect, where you have a lot of individual investors who are quite happy to invest in companies that quite clearly have very weak businesses or engaged in, in nefarious activities, but are willing just to make the investment anyway. 
Other people say it's just a lot of hubris in the market. Companies have gotten used to low interest rates and a market that seems to be willing to put up with a lot of irregularity. If you look at uh, the Chinese company GSX, the online education company, that has got three campaigns against it, which is another sign that there's not a lot of good targets when you have multiple activist shorts going after one company. And they've put out ample amount of information showing that there's problems with this company. The SEC has launched an investigation into them, but the stock keeps going up. It's up 150% so far this year, which would have resulted in significant losses for the shorts that bet against them. And what influence has the COVID-19 pandemic had on the short seller market this year? Well, the most obvious impact is there's been a a surge in the number of medical-related companies that are being targeted by shorts for stock promotion, claiming to be doing research on drugs or medical devices that would benefit patients of COVID-19, that they have very little or no real evidence that they can actually follow through on these products. A lot of investors have been happy to throw money at anything that looks like it could have any sort of promising gains related to COVID, even if it's clear that they won't. 21% of campaigns this year were stock promotion and 9% were product ineffectiveness, which is up both cases. Healthcare accounted for 28% of all short reports this year, which is a lot higher than it was last year. The other area we've seen a lot of interest, uh, which isn't related to COVID, is electric vehicles and battery makers. That's another area where uh, companies have been looking to become the next Tesla and making promises in that regard. And likewise, you've seen a lot of short seller activists go after companies like that, the most prominent of which is is Nikola, the uh, electric truck maker that has gotten a lot of excitement, uh, but is years away from producing a product if it ever does. And that has actually been quite successful short for uh, some of the short sellers with returns of 50 to 70 percent. And finally, is more activist short selling taking place because of the pandemic? Actually, no. Quite interestingly, we've seen in the United States, short seller campaigns have been lower than they were last year, quite substantially. But overseas, we've seen stable or in some cases, quite significant increases in short seller activity. Uh, In China, we saw a significant jump in the number of short campaigns. And Canada, interestingly, we've seen a doubling of the number of campaigns. And in Europe as well, it's higher a little bit, particularly in the United Kingdom. People point out that that's not necessarily because of issues in the United Kingdom, but because a lot of international companies have their technically headquartered in the UK. And the reason they've been looking overseas is, as one person said, well, that's where the fraud is. You know, the United States over the last few years, since the last financial crisis, there's been a tightening of regulatory scrutiny and legal ramifications for companies engaged in uh, financial misreporting or deceiving their shareholders. But despite the fact that there are more fraud targets overseas, returns have not really been very good overseas. Uh, China, for example, on a one-week basis, uh, there's only been returns of of less than 2% on average compared to... uh, 10% in the United States and 11% in in much of Europe. Even on the one-month basis, returns are lower in China than they were in the United States. One of the reasons is that some of these campaigns, as we talked earlier about GSX, for example, they take a long time for fraud to be proved. Even Luck and Coffee, which was a, a huge scandal in the end and over the longer period resulted in great returns for short sellers, that took a good uh, six weeks for the bad news 
to come through. In the meantime, a lot of short sellers, especially smaller ones that may you know, have positions on them, would have been in the red. So you know, going overseas has been a, an enticing target for the short sellers, but a risky one. Joining me now is activist Insight Monthly's Yuri Struter, who wrote this month's Campaign in Focus about the withdrawal of the Boulder Letter by the Securities and Exchange Commission, otherwise known as the SEC. So Yuri, what is the Boulder Letter and why is its withdrawal important for closed-end fund activism? Ten years ago, a closed-end fund named Boulder Total Return Fund wrote to the Securities and Exchange Commission asking if it can opt into Maryland State's Control Share Acquisition Act without violating the Investment Company Act of 1940. So why did ask that? Maryland's Control Share Acquisition provisions allowed a closed-end fund incorporated there to limit the voting rights of a shareholder a deemed hostile to 10%. However, the Investment Company Act states that every share of a closed-end fund has an equal voting right. As a result, many closed-end funds wanted to know if they can use the control share provisions as a defense mechanism. So, in response to Boulder's question, the SEC provided a guideline, essentially arguing closed-end funds would indeed violate the Investment Company Act if they were to opt into state control share acquisition institutes. So this was the SEC position from 2010 until May 27, 2020, when it withdrew this guidance, saying in a brief statement that it did so due to, quote, market developments since the issuance of the Boulder letter. So this basically means that closed-end funds will be able to opt into this control share acquisition institutes without fearing, you know, they violated the Investment Company Act. The widely held belief now is that the SEC, when citing this market development, is actually referring to a white paper published by the Investment Company Institute, which is a lobby organization for the investment fund industry. So in this white paper, the institute basically argues that the number of closed-end funds has fallen since 2010, mainly due to activists, because activists often push for liquidations or open-ending as a means to close the discount to net asset value. So the Institute argues that the SEC guidance on Boulder was wrong and they should give this defense mechanism to closed-end funds in order to save the industry. This means the job of activist investors gets harder because now they will not be able to build very large stakes and gain an advantage in their campaigns. They would probably need to engage more with management and other shareholders. But the longer term effect on uh, the number of activist campaigns in closed-end fund uh, industry still remains to be seen. So how much closed-end fund activism is there? It has definitely been increasing in recent years. According to Activist Insight Online data, 
in 2015, so this is five years ago, there are just 12 closed-end funds were targeted by activist investors. Four years later, in 2019, there were 28 closed-end funds targeted by activists. And uh, in 2020 alone, we already have 25 funds targeted. So it obviously has increased in recent years. And then what is each side of the debate saying? Activists argue that they should not be blamed for the dire state of the closed-end fund industry, noting that it's actually the popularity of cheap passive index funds like uh, ETFs that has led to a fall in the number of closed-end fund IPOs. They say that stifling activism will actually do a disservice to the retail investors because activists are typically targeting only the poorest performers. And as a result, retail investors can get stuck into a poor performer for a long time, as opposed to cashing in quickly when an activist emerges and then moving money to another closed-end fund. What happens next? Yeah, so activists cannot do much about it. There is no legal recourse. They cannot challenge this decision in court. But the SEC is still seeking input from market participants and it remains to be seen if it maintains its current position or changes it. But I guess what activists want from the SEC is more details about how this decision was made, which probably will follow. Just a quick note to say that Activist Insight and Proxy Insight have merged, forming a new company called Insightia. The name reflects our mission to provide expert insights combined with intelligent analytics on the way issuers engage with their shareholders in a fast-changing world. Clients will benefit from greater integration of data across platforms and a simpler account management structure with staff supporting the entire suite of products. For more information, click the link in the episode description to the Insightia website. Now for some other stories you'll find in this month's magazine. It took a financial crisis for Osmian Partners to discover the value of being an activist. In 2008, the firm found itself holding positions longer than expected, meaning it had a chance to build its stake in companies, become one of the largest shareholders and put a greater emphasis on ensuring shareholder interests were heard. Such was the case with online dating site Spark Networks. Having taken an initial 6% stake in 2010, Osmium upped its stake to 14% by February 2014, nominated four director candidates and called for bylaw changes to allow shareholders to call special meetings. The campaign lasted six months but ended with a rout for Osmium, winning four of six seats at Spark. It set a template for its future activist investments, including at Vitacost, ATS, Intersections, and most recently in its renewed demands at Leaf Group. Osmium has had trouble pushing for a sale at Leaf Group. It is currently embroiled in a proxy fight with the digital media company, having reignited fresh calls for a sale after the company launched a strategic review last year, though it came to nothing. Leaf's objections to a sale may have led to a proxy fight, 
but the option is one that Osmium is no stranger to. It took similar paths at both Spark and Vitacost, with John Lewis, Chief Investment Officer and Managing Partner, noting that while a proxy contest is a last resort for Osmium, it's an avenue the fund will take when success of some degree is certain. With both sides seemingly dug in at Leaf, Lewis is surely hoping that Osmium's record continues. A debate over the fiduciary duty of pension fund managers has been gaining steam after a proposal from the US Department of Labour sought to limit pension funds' environmental, social and governance, otherwise known as ESG, activities. ESG issues have become a buzzword for investors in recent years, but US President Donald Trump has kick-started a counter-revolution. A 2019 executive order from Trump called on the Department of Labour to re-examine its guidance on proxy voting, particularly regarding energy production. And on August 31, the department released a proposal that could squeeze ESG issues from the proxy voting policies of pension funds subject to the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, otherwise known as the ERISAR. In short, the Department of Labour told the pension funds that their fiduciary duty is to investors, not to social causes. Should the Department of Labour approve the rule change after its 30-day comment period, pension funds would have to demonstrate that other investors are finding material value in supporting any ESG topic before they incorporate it into their own strategies. Find out more about this story by downloading your copy of Activist Insight Monthly from our website. That's it for today's episode. If you like what you hear or want to read more, you can subscribe to Activist Insight Monthly by emailing subscriptions at activistinsight.com. If you want something discussed on a future episode, please email press at activistinsight.com and join the conversation by using the hashtag activistinsightpodcast on both Twitter and Instagram. Please do rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you are using to help others access our reporting. I'm Kieran Paul. Thank you for listening.